welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to have another old industry friend on the line with me here today, calling in all the way from Las Vegas, Mr. Bernard Stewart. Welcome to the podcast, Bernard. Hello from Las Vegas and all the fun that happens here. How are you? <laughs> exactly. Well, in this case, we'll we'll make sure that uh, not that things don't stay in what happens in Vegas doesn't just stay in Vegas. So uh, we're going to share some of these amazing <laughs> stories um, of your career um, in the industry. And, and again, not everyone will always uh, recognize names right away. So let me remind everyone um, of the illustrious career you had, um, you know, over those 40 years now or more. Um, and I think most people will recognize you, of course, of your, for your 30 years in ESPN, um, the Disney company. And you played multiple roles um, in the U.S. and around the world, particularly around the world uh, here in Asia, in the Caribbean, and other places. And we're going to dig really deep into the exciting years of the cable industries in the 80s and the 90s and, and 2000s, of course. And, uh, you know, naturally where it is now, um, we were going to draw, obviously, some comparison to what's happening around the world now with OTT and ESPN Plus and all the fun stuff. So, uh, you know, but before we get into all those things, uh, let's let's really go all the way back there. And, and I always like to start a bit at the beginning, really right at the beginning. Uh, it's always interesting to hear how people got into the first jobs or even in the, into the industry. And I know when you're coming out of college here um, it was really more in the you, you were I think the way I would describe it your first love was TV production um, you weren't really straight into the world of sports so uh, maybe let's start there first and, and how that all started well I, I'm going to take you back even a little bit farther than college right. just a quick because it, it, I often say that I have that the uh, Spielberg Coppola Lucas story of being a teen who uh, wanted to be in film. My parents, uh, I grew up in Alabama, Tuscaloosa, right. roll, tie, roll tie, for those of you who know about Alabama football. Um, and part of that growing up was somehow it infused upon me the concept of storytelling. And, and, and in fact, most of what we're going to talk about tonight is really centered around that word, that theme of st telling stories, because, you know, right. that's really who we are humans. That's how we communicate. And so my story is that my parents um, couldn't, I won't say ill afford it, but they found a way to get me my, my own camera. So I had my camera, my brothers, my sisters, there's five of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we were all very small. And it was at that point when I started taking movies and making movies and doing little things um, along the way of going through high school and getting into college. Um, I don't think I ever really lost that desire to do it. So my first uh, college I went to was called Talladega College. It was a small um, at the time, I guess one way to describe it, it was the, the Black Ivy League circuit. Uh, it was a 13 colleges that were uh, Fisk, Howard. Uh, there are a lot of colleges that some people may or may not be um, familiar with, hmm. but they were colleges that were predominantly black. And you got a chance to really have um, a first class education to understand the world. Uh, most of the kids were from all over. So it became my lesson in life the whole time I was there. Mm. And it really got me going into really deciding more that telling stories is what I wanted to do. That got interrupted by the military. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I, I served in the Air Force for four years. Oh, right. no, and it was, 
Yeah, and it was at the tail end of, of Vietnam, and that Air Force, it was during that Air Force period where I got a chance to actually finish my degree. Right. So how did you, th you know, you were, an, you know, I guess you called yourself an independent producer, director, right? Um, so how did that all start? I mean, how do you get, just come out of, I guess, air, in this case, the Army now or the Air Force and air and, Force. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and jumping straight into uh, film production? You know, how does that work? Well, as you, as you know, by your question, you, you never really jump right into it. There was a, a, yeah, a method to the madness. Correct, correct. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, um, when I left the Air Force, um, I moved to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, and it was during that period. I had my film de degree at the time, and I was just like, so what are you going to do? Um, how are you going to take care of your family? Um, and so I had a chance to up, uh, get a job during the daytime where I worked for the city of New Haven, and then at night, I um, did two things. I was a instructor uh, at the University of um, Southern Connecticut in film and tape journalism. So I taught an adjunct um, faculty member class there. All right. And also, uh, as a result of that relationship and them having um, production equipment, I got a chance to start working on independent projects. Uh, and it was around that same time um, I got an opportunity to be, um, to be able to go work at a local television station in New Haven. Right. And at the time, um, this will come back later. These most of my stories will all fold back on themselves. Mm. Uh, this was a station that was owned by Cap Capital Cities, which at the time was just an independent um, network group, station group, I should say, out of Philadelphia. But they ultimately wound up being the ones that bought ABC and the ABC Disney. We'll get to that later. Yeah, no, but great. working working at their station, there was a certain level of independence that. Uh, Cap Cities had about their stations and their station managers and the type of programming that they would develop. Right. And so they gave me an opportunity to work. Um, well, I'll describe it this way. The person that hired me, Joe Williams, was um, probably one of the most influential people in my career. Hmm. We all talk about how we got to different places. My whole career has been about somebody looking at me going, OK, well, he looks like a decent kid. Let's give him a break. Right. And that's what Joe did. Joe gave me an opportunity and he sat me down and he gave me an interesting introduction of how we were going to work together. He said, look, this is how I see things. You are pretty good at what you do. I'll help you make you better. Uh, we'll do something really interesting here at our station. And in exchange for your getting and working hard and making really quality product and making me look good, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about broadcast politics All right. because that is how you're going to survive in this business. And again, these are the, the, the it became the kind of cues that that's sort of been my foundation the whole time. And it was during that period that I did this program called First Edition. Right. And again, it was like looking around and, and the thing I <laughs> say to myself a lot is my whole path has been about looking around, looking at something that's very interesting, wanting to know not only about it, but can I do it? If that person can do it, maybe I can too. And so there were a lot of programs, syndicated programs that was going on at the time where people were having different types of lifestyle uh, situations. And I thought maybe we should create our own here. And so I got the support of the staff. And because of, of Joe's connection, and this is where why I mentioned his name, he was connected in with a very strong uh, group of individuals 
in the entertainment business. So I got a chance to have first edition on the segments in first edition, even though we were a local station. And ultimately, I, I two years in a row, I got an Emmy nomination for, yeah. for that show. Amazing. Yeah, that long because yeah. you you were clearly were already on a, on something there. But the part which is an interesting and 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 we'll get to that later, of course, that the broadcast politics what you mentioned earlier, because clearly you know pretty shortly after this, uh, I think uh, you then landed at at ESPN, right? And and we're now in the sort of nineteen eighty um, mid nineteen eighties. You had yeah. what I call your first round in uh, in in it with ESPN here. Um, you know, now, so how do you get from, from that station you were at, uh, you know, how do you land then in ESPN, which is, I guess, in Connecticut already at that time, right? Or where were they based? Right, right. It was. It was. I mean, it was, uh, as some people like to say synchronicity, others like to say coincidences. I bunch them together and say, you know, when things happen, you have to be smart and take advantage of it. Mm. ESPN launched in 79, uh, that's September. All right. I was still working at the station. Uh, and because of the the nature of the project that they were doing, this upstart, this you no longer three minutes of sport at the end of a newscast. You are now twenty four seven. At the time, mm -hmm. we weren't twenty four seven, but you were big twelve hours of sport seven yeah. days a week. What is this monster? What is this thing they're trying to do? How right. do you feed it? Right. And they began to go around um, the various stations, the the, the management. I don't know if you want to get into how ESPN started or not, but I'll leave that to you. No, no, I'd love uh, to hear but, a bit of that. I mean, you were there right at the beginning. So, yeah, please uh, share with us. Okay. Well, this actually coincides with the idea of my moving up is that during the time I was sort of having, um, how do I put it, having my feeling my oats about doing the things I was doing, I recognized that, um, I, again, I like to do kind of independent projects. So I was doing – and. Um, it's a place called Toad's Place in New Haven. So we, we became friends with the people who were running it. And we he, he owned the production company. And so when I wasn't working during the day, at night, we would do just different types of uh, acts that would come through. Hmm. And after you shoot this, and this is, again, pre-cable being cable, back then there was no such thing as you put your tape uh, and a cable interconnect so that you just put your tape on one place and it goes all over Connecticut. Right. You literally had to take your tape to all the various head ends. Mm. And that was how cable was uh, more or less managed throughout the U.S., right. uh, which is where a lot of the whole genesis of cable came from. Yep. I mean, I'm not I'm talking to a global audience, but I'm going to presume that a lot of this started within that group. And so knowing in the experience of having to do that, trying to understand it, I heard about these guys who were a father and son who wanted to take the University of Connecticut basketball and place the University of Connecticut basketball all over the state live. Hmm. Well, what had happened during this period, uh, RCA, which is RCA Network. Some people remember seeing the little yeah. uh, dog sitting in front of the megaphone yep. uh, or the speaker. Well, RCA had just reasonably they had launched in within that period. And I know I'm going to get dates wrong and people are going to scream at it, but I'm, I'm doing the best I can. They had put up a, a satellite and that satellite was then the way that everybody was going to start to transmit to the country. Okay. Uh, not sure how many people realize that HBO has been around since way, 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 way like ESPN, okay. probably even before a little bit, uh, because they were 
transmitting on UHF frequencies and a few other frequencies around the New York area and New Jersey area. I'm not sure if they were outside of that in the metropolitan area. But they um, also were like us um, watching, and they were also like this uh, father and son group watching what was happening. So when the satellite went up, um, uh, his name was uh, um, Rasmussen and his son. They decided that they wanted to do the, the uh, live basketball. They went down and had a meeting with um, the people at RCA about this transponder thing and about getting their signals to Connecticut. Mm. And they asked him how much it was. And I, I think um, there is, he has a book about it out that you'll be able to find on Amazon that this goes in more detail. But the story is, is that he and his son had a meeting with um, the people at RCA. They said, look, okay, we understand what you want. Price tag is a million dollars. And in fact, during 1979, a million dollars was a lot of money. Yep. Uh, he had to try to figure out what he was going to do about this. And as the really anecdotal piece of this goes on the way out the door, probably not that, but it makes it makes the story sound charming. On the way out the door, they go, you know, it's not just Connecticut. You have the opportunity to put your signal once it's up there. It's everywhere. It's all over the U.S. and mm. it's live. Mm. And so there are, just fast forward, the Rasmussen's have a conversations uh, with people that they know. They get in touch with Getty, Getty Oil, Getty Oil, the uh, diversified division, uh, a gentleman by the name of Stu Eby, who um, loved sports. Somehow this all mashed up together, and these guys decided, let's start it. Right. And Getty was a big funder behind it. Okay. Uh, they were able to bring a lot of people from New York. Um, some people teased that it was kind of NBC North, Chet Simmons, Scotty Connell, um, Barry Black, who was in HR. There was just a, hot, a lot of different names and people who had come out of New York and out of sport who were at a point in their career where they kind of needed a new challenge as well. True senior people in sport who had really killed, been killing it. So they were all given the opportunity to to make this thing happen. This, this thing called ESPN. ESPN. And, ESPN yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it's actually funny that most people never really know what it stands for. Uh, I'm sure you do. Well, well, the thing is, is that it really doesn't stand for anything now. That's it true. used to be called Entertainment Sports Programming Network. Correct. And they were literally were going to do more than just sports. They were doing programming. I think if if I remember correctly, in their early days, they actually had a film on about. Uh, Jackie Robinson or Babe Ruth or something. But um, they eventually realized, and this was back when if you, television stations were all four letters, you know, WTNH, uh, WB, and then there were those instances where there were only three, like WBZ in Boston. Right. Then CNN came on and became CNN, and they were the cable news network. And then everybody realized, you know, this is just a mouthful. Let's just now start truncating it. Right. So now when you talk about many of the networks that have been around for a long time, you only talk about them as letters. Yep. And so the Entertainment Sports Programming Network name was legally changed to ESPN. Uh, great. Thanks for taking us back there because, uh, as I said, I, I didn't even think of that because um, this is obviously before Disney had anything to do with it, right? Uh, Disney, obviously, when, uh -huh. what, when did they come in to the picture? Just, <laughs> I don't want to jump all the way there. We come back to, obviously, your early days. So, but, uh, yeah, but when did when did Disney actually uh, show up uh, or bought the, bought the company? Do you remember? 
Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was in the 90s. In the 90s only. Okay, well, so we're still in the 80s here. So let's uh, go back here. Um, So let's talk a bit about 1984 LA Olympics, right? So um, you uh, you're a hotshot, you know, young producer there coming into this new startup called ESPN. Um, producing well, I wouldn't call myself things. a hotshot producer. Uh, I, I call you <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, what I was is at the time, I was uh, because of my age. Uh, obviously, I'd done a lot by then, and I was uh, among the senior people there with the senior um, uh, experience in some areas, right. and especially in Sports Center. So um, I got a chance to have the job in Sports Center. Just to kind of backtrack a little bit, you asked me how I really got there. Yeah. It was a gentleman by the name of George Graham. George Graham was a sports uh, commentator at um, the station I worked at. Mm-hmm. When ESPN launched, they basically, I, I like to say, took the bus and made a bus tour of Connecticut and pulled in as a lot of talent, both technical right. production as well as on air. The Chris Bermans of the world, the Tom Meeses of the world, uh, George was part of that group, all began in the very early stages, and they were all um, local broadcasters. Yeah. And well, this and new ES- thing called ESPN. So yeah, no, no, no. Um, I mean, ESPN Sports Center is still, you know, anyone who's ever watched ESPN will know that name, right? And this, and you know, not just in the U.S., but that's you guys took that globally as well. There, you know, is an ESPN Sports Center. It was was one for a while here in Asia, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that. So I guess it, this is really was one of the centerpieces of ESPN from the start, from the looks at it, right? It was. I mean, our content, which people love to joke about, was uh, tractor pulling and uh, softball and a variety of other things. The major networks had all that sport. And for us to be on, we were on only from six in the evening, I think, until um, six in the morning or something like that. There was this this block where we were only on six hours a day. Mm. Um, And SportsCenter was a big part of that. And what you know, you you mentioned Sports Center in the context of the brand. I look at Sports Center more in terms of changing the concept of sports journalism or creating right. true sports journalism. Mm. Because really think about it, before then there was really wasn't this plethora of sport, in-depth sport, documentaries about sport. There was just a lot none of these things were right. part of the way people looked at things. Sports there was, was no just, storytelling, right? What you said earlier. Yeah, yeah, right. I exactly. Like the, the, yeah, the, you nice. know, sports sports was just this three minute piece at the end. Every now and then you got these nice little features they, they may throw in right. and highlights. And also highlights and, and you know, the highlight packages. What is a highlight package? The, yeah. those, all these things happen during the time that I, I sort love, of I came that. through the system. Yeah, now, it yeah. was, you know, Here's, a, here's another question then, uh, sort of, um, yeah. because you alluded to it already. Uh, so what was the original ESPN program? Obviously, it doesn't sound like they had big budgets. Um, and at that time, of no. course, you still had free-to-air. TV was probably the dominant platform, um, you know, with big advertising budgets, et cetera. So like you said, you know, the NFLs and the NBAs of the world were obviously in different locations. So, you know, how did, you know, what was really the, the starting point and, and what were they able to get their hands on? Let me approach it this way. And that was, we are a sports star, sports-centric planet. Yeah. And it comes from something I think you and I uh, may have talked about in in previous discussions when we talked about life, is that sports really is about competition. And some people say they don't like sports. Some people, they don't like competition. To me, the idea that you have to, if you don't hunt, you don't eat, that's competition. And so it's ingrained in who we are. And for us, it was a matter of touching 
that piece of the, the people wanted it. They wanted more stories mm. and they wanted more stories, even if it was putt putt golf. Okay. And they wanted more stories if it was just about big trucks and monster trucks. Right. And the more we began to get that, we became a sort of the friend of the family because um, people often ask what was the magic and mystique behind ESPN. It was that there were a group of people who were given an opportunity to do something they really loved. And people kind of got out of their way to try to figure out what this was. Mm. And, you know, you, you take many of the people who are well known. Um, it may not be as well known globally, but if you start looking at the sports celebrities that you know today, I dare say a lot of their way of trying to communicate and tell stories came a lot from where we started back in 1980 in the early 80s yeah. because nobody was doing it. And and, and I know the networks are going to uh, the major networks going to say, no, you're wrong. The Olympic stories, the Olympic features. But to me, all of those are super high production value things that happen every four years or whatever. Yeah. But on a consistent basis, day in and day out, 365, people expected us. Mm. There were things about us that was fascinating. Um, you know, we got called into court once because of uh, a divorce. Because the, the husband just kept watching us a little too much and I <laughs> okay. didn't like it. Okay. Uh, we have, we've had kids named Espen, you know, after ESPN. Oh, wow. There were people who used to tell us that even though it may not have been the world's greatest programming in the early phases of what we were, but at two o'clock in the morning when you have to get up with a kid and walk a kid and try to keep him from crying, it was nice not to have to watch something about dish detergent. You know, that there was actually content. We were really a, a filling a gap of content and of sport content yeah. during a period in many people's lives. And they were thirsty for it. And yeah. I think that thirst keeps um, amplifying itself as you, as, you know, later we'll talk more about you mentioned OTTs and everything else. Still, it just at the end of the day, it gets back around the storytelling, connecting with people and filling the void. Mm. And all of these things that we're going to talk about later in terms of the challenges, just come back to that. Yeah, yeah. And so if you kind of look at our success um, and a lot of the sports center and from that point, it is, you know, it's what everybody wants. Once there is this um, tipping point, as uh, Malcolm used to say, Malcolm uh, Gladwell said, and he wrote this book, Tipping Point. Yeah. Once you hit this tipping point, all of a sudden you are now in a position where you can actually make something. That's right. Um, our tipping point was interesting in that our tipping point did not come because of our programming. Our tipping point came because of a, com um, a sit down and a conversation. And I, I think this is public knowledge for everybody who knows the cable industry, where uh, there was a group in um, John Malone, who's still very active mm -hmm. and, and his group. He's very much been a leader and a pioneer and somebody I've, I've always admired his business acumen. Yeah. I know you and uh, some of the other uh, interviews I've heard uh, to talk from a marketing point of view about someone like Mark McCormick and how he redefined it. I mean, there are only a couple of people who've had a chance for it to capture lightning in a bottle, and that's what ESPN was. Mm. And John Malone understood that. We he had he was in the uh, hardware business at the time. I mean, I'm yeah. going to discount the cable piece, but we were in the content business. Right. And what we were, were we were the per group that when a businessman, a uh, businesswoman would travel and would go and have to stay overnight in a Marriott and we weren't on the te television, you know, he was a little disappointed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's only so much news you can take about good, bad and all the things that go in life. Yep. You want to escape. 
Mm. And we were that escape. So it became this kind of common sense thing that everybody knew this cable was important. And for cable to grow and take advantage of the technology, you needed someone who was or something that was going to be not so much a lost leader, but just a leader in terms of people saying this is what makes life good. And and we became that. And so there was this meeting between um, our group and with uh, uh, Malone. Um, Most people don't realize in the very beginning of cable, cable programmers paid to be on cable systems. And and that ha- and that was it transpired up until about 1984. And somewhere around 84 in the 80s, there was this sort of sit down where everybody realized that if we're going to keep moving this thing forward, it has to the, the, the economics have to change. Right. You will not be able to continue as ESPN with relying on advertising. Because we thought we could do it on advertising using the old traditional methods of, of sure. broadcast television. And the reality was, nope, we needed to start looking at this much like HBO was at the time, which had always been subscriptions. We need to add something to this to help make this work. Mm. So we asked for money from the cable companies and the cable companies in turn who already had subscriptions going with different things all of these financial models began to sort of evolve to what we have today. Right. So there was there, that was to me the uh, one of the more significant points along the way of, of the maturation of ESPN. Um, another point that I often like to cite is being how the leadership happened of what we were doing was around the NFL. We had mm-hmm. gotten Major League Baseball, we had gotten, but then we actually did a deal for the NFL, and as most people realize, American football pretty much uh, runs the roost much like soccer does uh, international football than most other parts of the world. And so being as powerful as it was for us to get our hands on it, well, you know, that didn't come cheap. And it was because of some very smart decision-making at the top with our affiliate group. You know, George Bodenheimer, who eventually became president at the time, was in charge of the affiliate group. He, along with Steve Bornstein, who was running programming, and Roger Werner, who was running the company. I mean, they're all, again, always got in a room and tried to figure out, okay, how are we going to make the, make magic? And they figured out that if they went back and actually had a honest-to-God conversation with the um, cable operators right. and say, hey, look, we all do this right. We can actually get NFL and grow the business and uh, I know I make it sound like a kumbaya moment. They all hugged, and it was not that at all. It was <laughs> not. It was knockdown, drag out. But it was uh, because everybody had competing agendas, sure. as they do in business. Absolutely. So, but honoring those agendas, finding a way through it, and you know, again, I I'm, there are certain people who I, I give my hat tip my hat for and George is certainly one of them because he was able to negotiate with affiliates and asking for money asking for things that they did not want when I say he he led the team that did it hmm. um, and he walked away with a, with his reputation intact as being an honorable and straight shooter yeah. and it's hard to do that these days for anybody to be able to have somebody speak well of them after you just went and put your hand in their pocket yeah. deep no, and I love that. And as I, I mentioned earlier, that you know, I did a bunch of homework this morning on um, the latest ESPN numbers. Uh, and again, just to kind of put it into sort of current perspective, right? So, 11, uh, ESPN's revenue stands around eleven billion dollars. You know, up or down a few 
hundred of that, hundreds of millions. Um, no, and no eight, billion of that is still the affiliate fees, which we were just talking about, how it started, right? How uh, ESPN went, hey, I need some of your money there rather than me paying you to be on your platform. Only Mm $2.3 roughly is advertising, and then half a billion of it is streaming, which would be the ESPN Plus side of it, right? So it's amazing, um, you know, now listening to what you're just saying, how it all started. And now we're talking, you know, billions of dollars, of course, over the years here um, being generated with that model. So uh, that's a a really nice uh, sort of – you know, time back in history kind of moment here. Now let's uh, let's leave the the industry there for a minute and, and jump a bit back into your part of it um, with you know being a producer and of course you got the '84 Olympics uh, in LA um, and in Sarajevo. I believe you were involved and you did a bit of stuff around the America's Cup as well. Uh, just just have a short one on that um, before we then get into maybe what I would then call your second round in the ESPN, where it went more into the programming and, and other parts of the business okay i i, I tend to be long-winded with my stories remember storytelling yeah so, exactly. so uh, I'll, I'll short and sharp here <laughs> right i'll try to keep it short um it's specifically about the um let's see how can i okay let's take the america's cup let's take the olympics and we'll we'll, we'll take them and show how that whole idea about sports center developed Yes. Uh, remember, we didn't have a lot of live programming and we, we had to beg and find ways of getting highlights. Yeah. Uh, many of our features were features that were from stringers who sent in their pieces that they had done locally. Right. We became a hub so we could show that on a, in a, a national basis. So what so were we going to do originally? Hmm. Yeah. And so what were we going to do originally? Well, the Olympics came around in 84, a Sarajevo, and we were able to get credentialed to go. Hmm. Now, we didn't have a whole bunch of people. In fact, I don't think it was more than four or five that went to Syria over time. Riley was one of the producers who went and a, a reporter and some others. But it was just the fact that we had a touch of what the sport world was doing on a large basis. And because everybody else had big crews doing a whole lot of things, it's, it's almost like somebody saying that you have a big film and you have a lot of stuff that's left on the editing floor, and then somebody comes in and does a really nice short from what's left. Uh, I hope I'm not d- uh, knocking what we did in early days, but that was us. We were able to, within this framework of these large, massive budgets and massive events, come in and do our take on a story from the sports center point of view. And, you know, we, we couldn't show highlights uh, unless it was within the embargo period, which is what everybody, local stations and everything. So we followed all the rules. Mm. So following those rules and realizing that, you know, it was time sensitive, how do you do it differently? And again, this is where the whole familiarity and the whole baby and overnight and filling the boards, we became very close friends and recognized by the sporting world and sporting community. So that they knew, for the most part, we were there to tell their story. Most of the time, it was a good story. So we didn't have an agenda other than that. And so that's how people saw us. They, we weren't a threat in the context of, here they come again to slice and dice. They were trying to pull things over. No, we would just want to tell your story. You started out as a kid in a grocery store, and now here you are going down a slope. Mm. Um, that was Sarajevo. But what really was fascinating for me was... Uh, the Olympics in 84 in L.A. And most people don't realize that this was the first time that the Olympics had ever reached the point of being anywhere near profitable. 
But or even the yep, thought of it. That's true. Yep. Yeah, they were. Yeah, Peter Uberoff, who had been a, a baseball commissioner for a while, decided to take over the whole idea. And the the pomp and circumstance you see now, all of the things that were infused into the Olympics, a lot of it started there in L.A. Right. I remember, um, you know, for me, you, you're right. I'm a, I won't say a young hotshot producer, just say a young producer with a lot of responsibility of four or five people. We decided that we were going to, um, there were times when I got in trouble and this is one, um, I don't want to say trouble, but I took some leaps. This is one in America's Cup story. I'll get to it in, uh, in a minute as the other, where we took the leap that we were going to go ahead and send a crew and we were going to stay for six weeks in and around LA, getting prepped for it afterwards and getting it ready done. And so we did, we brought a crew in, uh, the whole idea of being there for six weeks, uh, and then watching the opening ceremonies. And that opening ceremonies was 100,000 people all in this stadium. They was one of the first times that they had been given people these uh, color cards. Mm -hmm. And so all the seats were assigned. And then there was at one point during the ceremony when everybody who had this little colored piece of plastic on their seat was supposed to hold it up over their head. Yep. And he did it. And it was just the flags of the world. Yeah. It, it was, again, one of the most significant things for me to understand just the power of all of this. And then on the stage was 100 pianos, uh, white pianos, all with people in tux playing them. And then Rayford Johnson, the you know broad jumper, standing in the archway with the torch, white, letting the torch run up to the top. Mm. I mean, it was it was that, that the grandiose... The, yeah, that emotional grandiose feeling we, we, we've come to know as being the Olympics, I will give a lot of credit to what happened in, in, in 84. America's Cup, and I know you had uh, Craig Thompson on, um, yeah. very good, a, a good friend and someone who um, he and I, like everybody in this business, like you and I, we, we've all kind of done business together, had meals together, talked together. Well, the interesting about the thing about the America's Cup was that and it, it's kind of bookend my career, strangely enough, is that um, in, when the America's Cup was going on in 83, yeah, I think I got the years right. 1983, the America's Cup was going on. There was uh, Lipton Tea, believe it or not, the, the tea company mm -hmm. had the rights to it. They were trying to sell and hustle their um, footage to local stations and get people interested in the America's Cup in this race. Right. There was uh, Louis Vuitton, who the company and their PR group, oh, they were in the challenge. Right. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that sponsored the Challenger Series in Newport. Mm, okay. And up until this point, for 132 years, the U.S. and the New York Yacht Club had, had won the America's Cup. Right. It was never a question. Done. Done deal. Yep. And then through, after um, the Aussies and Alan Bond and that whole group began to do all kind of interesting things, it became a, sort of an issue. And I thought, okay, we're in the middle of summer. I have no programming there. We don't have baseball. What do I do? Right. So I actually, um, you know, say forgiveness, permission kind of thing. I actually sent a crew up to Newport and they stayed uh, for almost a month mm -hmm. through the challenges. And of course, I got called on the carpet asking me, what was I doing? Why would you be spending that much of your budget in it? And after me doing the, my own version of storytelling, I managed to not get bruised too much. But we stayed with it. And as much as that sounds like a just sort of an okay story, what happened was it was in after the Challenger series when it came down between us and the uh, and was it the Aussies or was it the Kiwis? 
uh, when it came down between us and it going down under, where the whole U.S. found out that there's this cup we never knew anything about on yeah. a mass basis. <laughs> It's, well, it hadn't been lost yet, yeah, but, but these guys were about to take it back someplace that we didn't know a lot about. Right, right. And um, it was during that period that because we already had crews in place, because we already had a relationship with everything that had done, hmm. and I, I will stick my hand up and take credit. I don't take credit often, but because I had sort of pushed the envelope for us to kind of get this done, hmm. when it came down to the finals and that race and that the, the whole drama that was around it, we, uh, programming group, and this at the time, Steve Bornstein, I keep mentioning his name, but Steve was president of ESPN at one point, went on to ABC and a whole bunch of others. Um, he was another person that I considered to be um, a bit of a, um, a mentor. I'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, he, he and his team decided that, okay, Sports Center, you've done your little thing. Now we're going to take it over. And they put it on live throughout the network for the whole time uh, the race. And we watched the cup go down under. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, you know, people talking about the America's Cup now and everything else. I think a lot of the fact that here we are, this upstart, which less than five years old. Um, and we were doing this and putting significance on different things that people really hadn't known much about right. and putting it in a context, again, competition. You yeah. know? What, do you mean? what do you mean you're about to take our 132-year-old cop? You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine that that was a big story, and, and, and I love that. Uh, and I had a couple of folks exactly on it who've had some America's Cup story. It's just an incredible event. And now, as a, you know, so from the back of that, uh, you obviously just, just had a you know, short sort of year or two uh, – you know, then outside of ESPN, and then you came straight back. But this time, I guess, you know, let's call it round two here, um, in a, I would say, a very different role, right? You were getting in there as yeah. a director of programming, um, and, yeah. uh, you know, which is obviously very different than being in the front there creating content. So, you know, t talk us a bit about that. Well, you know, what is early days well, of ESPN programming director doing? You're buying lots well, of things, or, or what is it really what you're doing? Well, okay. I, I don't want to discount the little break that you mentioned because that break was at WBZ TV in Boston as the executive's news producer. Correct. And it was during that part where I got a chance to understand true journalism in relationship to it. And this, the reason this is important, I'm bringing it back to the, the whole discussion that we've often had about the industry. I got that job, and a lot of the time I was there, even during the 18 months I was there, most of the 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 I want to call it brain drain, but a lot of the discussion that I had with others was about how are you guys in cable managing to do this on a shoestring? Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to spend time around people who had money, resources, local television. Um, Boston is one of the most literate um, uh, cities in the country, one of the few cities where you could lead with politics and people actually care about it versus you know, the idea of it leads, it bleeds. So it was that education. But then all of a sudden I, I, I got the opportunity to come back to ESPN. And that opportunity that came back um, was after having a conversation with, with, with Steve Bornstein, uh, who was had role. He had moved up in the company and he had some roles that he wanted to try and, and fill. And he asked me if I was interested in, in, in coming back. Um, and obviously it was, you know, after spending all that the 18 months of watching really 
tough stuff in life and reality, I decided, you know what, let me get back to sports where I can do something that makes people happy and more meaningful every day. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, the opportunity was given to me to be director of programming. And at the time, ESPN only had one network. Right. And what director of program planning means is that there are 8,630 hours, if I've got the number right, and still remember correctly, hours in a day. Mm -hmm. They have to be filled. That's the reason I call it a monster. And the person responsible for filling it, or the team responsible for filling it, have to plan. Right. Sports is a cyclical thing. Every year there's a Super Bowl. Every year there's every four years there's a World Cup. Every four years there's Olympics. All these things have to fit within it. Every season has um, its its run. There's the playoffs. There's so you all. If you step back and look at each one of the little squares, uh, and we used to have this place we call the war room. Mm -hmm. And in the war room, we had a full 18 months, almost two years of what at the time we used to call um, bunk scheduling sheets. And they were each week put on this massive wall long before computers. And we would sit and each one of those blocks had to be filled, identified, understood. And as program planning, our job was to say, hey, look, for those programs that we had for the events we had our job was to make sure we got the best out of it and for those areas where there were gaps i got a chance to do some interesting things in terms of uh, filling in the gaps and developing along with our program uh, acquisition team right. so we worked together as a team and uh, each team was an acquisition person and a scheduler and the schedulers reported to me and the acquisition people reported to the head of uh, libby king was the head of um, acquisition at the time and so you were forced to understand sport. You were forced to look at life. And I still, to this day, always look at my life in six months to 12 months. And at one point, it was 18 months. Most people can't tell you what they're doing tomorrow. Mm. But I have always had this habit of being able to Looking think about forward. myself. Yeah. And, and you have to because, yeah. you know, if you're about to purchase something, that's right in the middle of the World Series. As much as you like it, do you really want to do spend? If you do it, are you going to spend that much money? And with one network, how are you going to kind of program it? You get you, you get the point that I'm making. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so, and, and it was um, during that period I got a chance to meet a lot of interesting people because again, what we were doing, we had um, I had my first opportunity to meet David Hill. Uh, and that was just as Fox was making some decisions about coming to the U.S. and starting their network group and doing things down in the U.S. And people were kind of fascinated with how we were kind of walking through it. It wasn't that we were giving away secrets. It was just common sense. I mean, there were days that we actually picked up the phone and I don't know. If, well, none of the people from Major League Baseball are there anymore, so they won't get mad. But there were days we actually one day we actually picked up the major, uh, phone and had a conversation with discussing people at Major League Baseball about something they were about to do, reminding them that it was a, a period for something else for some major sport that was going on. Mm -hmm. So we had open line communication with a lot of different people um, talking about a lot of things. And that's the reason I really felt good about being there in the programming planning department. The one thing I, I, I left out, which was really the clincher for me when Steve told me, he said, look, much like you just led the introduction to the job, he, he said, look, you've been in production, you know how to produce, you know the technical side. If you can understand the programming side, how that content has to be developed, where it goes and how to best get the most out of it, you'll understand the business and you will have a very long career. 
Which he and did. <laughs> and he was right. And I guess yeah, you, yeah, you 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 found a way to work around the broadcast politics as well, which we will get into a bit more later. Um, but what I'd love to get into a bit is, um, you know, so you've obviously did it in the U.S. Um, and then ESPN, I'm sure someone decided, hey, you know what, we can do this globally, right? We can go and and start producing stuff in different languages and um, and not just be, you know, just purely an American well, platform. When did that started to sort of come up? I, I was going to say, I like I like the way you neatly package <laughs> the way things come about. The idea was it, it wasn't that neat at all. Hmm. Uh, what happened was, um, again, people, it's like all of us. It's like you and your business. We all hear about different things, whether it be esports or other things, and go, hmm, let's take a look at that. Well, people heard about what we were doing. We were in sport. And it turns out the country of Australia, as you know, a big, 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 big sport yep. uh, lovers. And it was a company in Australia. Australia was just about to get ready to launch their own version of cable. Mm -hmm. And they were looking even at a sports network because, you know, they had so much sport there, more yeah. so than anything yeah. else in terms of variety. Yep. Yeah. I mean, many countries have one or two sports. Australia, very much like it was all about an amalgam of the UK and the US when it comes to having just this plethora of sports. So they figured we could do a sport network. They came to us and they actually wanted to know, and as the meeting goes, um, the meeting was with um, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Brilliant, who really started our international uh, group, more or less. And he was actually our legal counsel for the company. Mm -hmm. And because he was the guy who ran the team that always looked at business affairs, looked at the contracts, understood the programming when it was there, and always had to talk about territories, I think the, the light bulb went off in his head one day when these people showed up at his door saying, hey, look, we'd like to buy your programming and take it to Australia. Hmm. And again, anecdotally, the way it goes is that, okay, so how are we going to do this? <clears throat> so there was a trailer built outside of the production facility in a parking lot. And that trailer had a team of people in it. And their responsibility was recording all the things that the guys in Australia wanted. And then they'd pack it up and ship it to Australia to play it back on their network. Right. And that was really the genesis of the international. And it all happened, uh, it began to unfold in very interesting ways when it comes to technology. We all look, uh, remember all these large facilities that had these huge, massive satellite dishes out front. Mm. But the whole point of those satellite dishes, they were point to point in only a few places. Well, those few places turn out to be, it used to be much like we were sending tapes to Australia. Yep. Uh, in America, syndication was done like it was in Connecticut before ESPN on tapes. Mm. You send a syndicated tape. If you ran the prices right and you had it on at 4 o'clock at a local station, uh, if you had a syndicated program, that program, Entertainment Tonight, or any of those programs that are, are similar to that, uh, those lifestyle programs that happen in Asia and other parts of the world, all of those things when they first began were uh, cycle bicycled around on tape yeah and in fact we we used uh, to get some of those from you guys <laughs> we still oh, have yeah. probably some <laughs> old espn tapes lying around the office <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and so that was part of the business that um i sort of was asked to be part of right. um andy and i had a long conversation uh, I had done my thing with the uh, programming group. We had just launched ESPN2. So okay. the question became for me, uh, it, it wasn't a question as much as it was the opportunity. I sat down with Andy at one of the conventions. 
there was a convention as a convention a programming convention in the u.s that very much like mip or mipcom mm. most people are sportel most people in your audience know those well this is this sort of pre-tate certainly predates sportel Right. And that uh, we were sitting in uh, New Orleans having um, a drink. And I have no idea why he sought me out. Um, like I said, people have a tendency to be very generous to me at times uh, during my early career. And I really appreciate it. I like to think it's because uh, my reputation was I could get things done and I knew what the hell I was doing. Sure but you were. That's, for others, that's for others to say. I won't say that about myself. Uh, and he asked me, would you like to come? I, he said, I have this idea of putting uh, ESP in all over the globe. Hmm. And I knew, again, by keeping my nose, down, uh, nose, my nose, my eyes and ears open to technology, what was going on in the syndication business. And it just all made a lot of sense. So Andy had uh, started doing this more than just bicycling. He had actually got some satellite time and it started having a relationship with a group in Argentina, right. which was really one of our first beaches we had internationally. And so he asked me if I wanted to work. And so when I went to work for Andy, it was like five people. That was the international division. Hmm. And um, I've, I've always described my career as um, like somebody giving you the keys to a Maybach or a Bentley or a Rolls and your job and all you got to do is just keep putting gas in it. And as long as you keep putting gas in it, they'll let you keep it. Mm -hmm. Well, that was how my career unfolded. It was, I was always given these little sandboxes that were empty mm -hmm. and I could go. And the great thing about, uh, and, you know, the broadcast politics, the lesson in broadcast politics taught me was that, if you have the less on your plate, if somebody, we all have this happen in our career, everybody does. You're doing great, things are going okay, then all of a sudden they start parsing out what you're doing to other people. Mm. What most people freak out about, what I was advised is that the moment that that start happening, just realize you can do a very good job of what's left on your plate. And if you do that, you might be able to grow that into something somebody else never knew existed. Right. Well, that always became part of my sticking my hand up saying I'll do it when nobody else would really want to do that. And they were always wondering why would I do that? Um, and so I got a chance to take the five people over there. We were able to develop an international division of when I, my, we'll get to the other, my moving to Asia, but by the time I left, there was, you know, 150, 200 people. We had developed all these languages. Uh, we were serving all of these networks all over the place. And all of that just became uh, came from curiosity and getting on planes and understanding what other people were doing in other parts of the world. Yeah, amazing. Now, what was sort of um, and the again still sticking to that sort of uh, time we're now here in sort of the I guess the, the almost the nineties. Um, was it really driven by ESPN Sports Center, the international edition, um, or were you already taking oh. full, um, you know, uh, let's call it U.S. content and, and syndicating it globally? It was the U.S. content syndicating globally. I mean, the Royal had reached the point then where sports news was uh, revered the way it was. Okay. Uh, uh, and... Uh, certainly not to the point where they were to look at it is we we're only concerned about local sports. They weren't concerned about American highlights or hearing these stories. It, it was just a whole different environment during that time. It was primarily Sports Center was a, a nice product for the U.S. What we realized our product of live sport 
okay, let me, let me again, let's take, I'm going to take a right hand turn this time and talk a, a little bit about Sportel, MIPCOM, and MIP. Please. If that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if many people know where Sportel came from. We were all had to go to MIP and MIPCOM if you were a sports person yeah. and to sell, to syndicate. And the reason that we had to go there is because during that period, and again, people are going to push back against this, but there was a time in European sport, we were the center of the this sporting world in Europe, the programming people made the decisions and the sports guys had to defer to that in terms of money, in terms of budget, everything. And so they would come to MIP and MIP comments for it, and we would have our meetings with them, and then they would be part of the pro larger group. It became, um, and a lot of this had to do with some of the things that uh, Craig talked about with Champions League and others and how this is emergence and power behind the monetary power and audience drive, driving of live sport and reconfiguring how sport was done, especially soccer. Well, a lot of that gave power to the sporting department. So much so that the sporting departments now could make their own decisions and be outboarded. Yeah. And what they did was they decided that at after MIPCOM, MIP and MIPCOM in the spring and fall, they would ask people to hang around another week and then come to their event, which was three, four, five days. It eventually grew to a week. And they initially had it in Monaco. And they had it done. The hotel that the chicane in Monaco has been everything from uh, uh, Ramadas, uh, all kinds of names. I don't remember the name of the hotel right now, but it's the prominent hotel that's the chicane in Monaco where you, you know, Formula One yep, does this little right. It was the Intercontinental uh, that, thing at the time. Right. And, uh, you know, if you go up the hill, there's um, you run into Hotel de Paris and Monaco. I mean, I never thought that as a child growing up in Alabama, I would know how to hang out in front of the Hotel de Paris and hang out in Monaco and watch the yachts as as, as well as I do. Yeah, it's been it's it's always a good week. I, that's for sure. Yeah. And so to, to get to that, uh, I'll get to the point. And the point was, is that there was no convention center. And so they convinced the hotel to take all of the beds out of the rooms and each group, ESPN and it was myself and a gentleman by the name of Mark Riley and his team, Rich Leffler and a few others, they, we would actually have set up ourselves in these rooms, right. and that was how we were. That's how Sportel got started. That's right. Yep. I still remember my first one. I think was when they were next to the helicopter pad, where they had this sort of temporary mm. thing. And every time a helicopter took off, no one understood a word inside anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. They moved. Uh, yeah. That was before they moved all the way down in the. Yeah, correct. None of it's ever easy, but what the fascinating part was is that many times that we were often told, no, we don't want you what you have. No, we can only use a little bit. But what we always found that we were the great opportunity for people whenever they got ready to kind of look at things or try to do things or try to use us a little bit on an international basis. So as the whole ecosystem of ecosystem of sport expanded, we were always there with the technology because, you know, our guys and one thing I will say about the ESPN family, uh, especially from a technical side, we've always been at the forefront of almost everything. Yep. We were always loved by Sony and Panasonic. You know, when they had new toys, our guys never had a hard time having a conversation with them. Right. You know, one of my more fascinating periods was, you know, 3D. 
the television. Everybody was fascinated. I still have one sitting in my living room that I don't use now. But <laughs> when three, 3D television came out, um, we were part of um, the campaign that it was a manufacturer from Taiwan. I won't call the name, but we were part of their campaign to expand that television. And by us being their number one brand, and they would be mentioning on all of our sporting programs. I even gave a speech and had a, a meeting in a convention on behalf of uh, when I was running Asia on behalf of our, our company and that and that relationship. Mm. So, you know, technology, again, the sports, movies and news tend to be where people start thinking. Even something as mundane as compression technology, and this will excite every last tech, technical person that's listening to us, something as mundane as technical uh, as compression, when your signal is going down the pipe to a cable operator, right. guess who gobbles out up most of the bandwidth? And why compression and this fancy M4 had to be figured out is because sport gobbled up so much. If you think about movies, or news. Most of the time, it's the talking head, and there's not a lot of frame-to-frame -frame, uh, change. Right. But with sport, it's just this massive change every frame. Yeah, it's an interesting point because, especially now, where we talk about OTT and how we streaming these that, that content uh, around the world on you know, digital devices. Uh, again, that, that is where people always think it's so easy. But uh, you rightly said, you know, content, uh, sports content is very rich, which means it takes a lot of bandwidth. And even in mm -hmm. the old days, I guess, which which is what you're talking about, which was uh, different technology than we're using now here. No, it's, it is interesting. Now let's get into the the uh, the part when you came to Asia. Uh, I think we're at the end of 1990 here. Uh, uh, early 2000s, um, and you were moved into Hong Kong, I believe, right, um, as a sort of VP, general manager of ESPN Asia Pacific. Now, mm -hmm. I, I want to sort of frame this in two ways. One is, of course, hear about exactly what you guys were doing out here, um, but also on, you know, talk a bit about, you know, and this is just my perception, okay? Uh, it may be completely sure. wrong. Um, ESPN, I mean, no one will ever doubt how massively successful it is and was in the U.S., right? And, and, and how much money it made and that it's, you know, one of the, the biggest stories out there. And, and obviously, that's why Disney bought it and made a lot of money and made it even bigger. But globally, um, I don't know, I would argue that the ESPN channels, which were created around the world, were, equal, were really at that level. Um, and it may have had a whole bunch of reasons mm -hmm. for that. But I'd love to hear your side of it um, because you were obviously part of building some of that. Um, but tell, you know, and, and so really look with both the, the opportunities you saw, and which was the obvious, you're huge and very successful in the US, so let's take it globally. And but also the challenges which come with that, right, to, to really be successful on uh, in, in India and in China and in Japan and, and, you know, in Europe, uh, which, you know, ESPN was for a while and, you know, other parts of the world. Um, let's let's uh, have, have a good chat about that part. Sure. I mean, I and let me give it to you in a way that I have approached it since I was an executive responsible for making things happen. Hmm. And that was it would be really presumptuous of me to walk into anyone's home and assume that I am going to be the most important thing that they've ever had. Right. And so if I take that point of view, what I'm saying is, guess what? I am a pretty good thing to have around in your home. You'll get to love me because I think we offer something a little bit different than what you have. And I may not ever be the most important tool in your toolbox, but you will know if I'm not there in that toolbox someday if you need me. Right. 
And that really is the philosophy I think I took. I, I can't speak now for our company, but um, and it was it's the also the learnings that evolved because ESPN was owned by Disney. It was my observations of being very much close to the people who were running Disney as well, mm. because you know ESPN was bought in '94 by by Disney. Um, Disney left us alone for a long time. And when I mean alone, I really mean alone that, you know, you don't beat up on the golden goose. Yep. Uh, we were a very good, um, responsible group of people, very talented group of people. So there was no real reason for anybody to, to freak out and do the old, the, the normal thought that, you know, okay, acquisition, let's just sort of clean up, move up, move out, throw things away. Yep. Um, I will say that that's from me, from my experience, it may have accelerated, and I know you mentioned the Fox deal. I, I know nothing about it, but I will say that even in something as big and as massive as that, I don't think anybody could say it was, you know, slice and dice the moment that they did it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that there, the, the the lesson that I learned in, in the environment I was uh, brought up in uh, was to just understand the first thing you do, you walk in and you ask questions first. Um, the the real important thing about my time in Asia, and which has been such 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 a marvelous way of my looking and learning to look at the world, is that if you walk into a country like Japan or China, and you realize that they've been doing something a particular way for three thousand years, it is incredibly arrogant of you to walk in and say, "Hey, you're doing that wrong." Mm. So, to get back to your premise about what why, you know, our, uh, our strength, our power, our presence, how do you find that? And how do you define what that should be? And so, again, my thinking was, I just wanted one, make sure we're at the table, because if we do have quality product, they're going to sample us. And if we can figure out how to make them understand that we're bringing more than just a sample, that we're bringing you an experience. And oftentimes our relationship and the relationship I tried to, to have uh, in each one of these markets, whether it's Japan, where I was working with our, our, our JV partners there, or Australia, where I was launching networks, New Zealand, you name a place. Whenever I showed up, what I was trying to get them to understand is we are more than just content on, on a satellite. Mm. Is that we are, and at the, you know, pick a, a point in time, we are the founders, if you would, of a lot of what the technology is, sport or not. A lot of what you're doing, a lot of how you're doing it, a lot of the way you're managing it, we made so many trial and error mistakes against it. And if you just stop for a minute and listen to us, we may be more value to you than just the idea of your buying content from us. Right. And so, yes, you're right. We're not. Um, and during the time I was there, we weren't we we're not the biggest thing on anybody's network at that point because we were still trying to figure out how to get people to understand what we were. But I will say that we were always there, that, you know, people always sample things. And if they don't like you, they toss you in a heartbeat. Right. Think about the landscape and how many so much money has been spent in this business of developing and the barrier to entry. But the brand is still there and it still has uh, its presence, evolved presence, definitely, because you're smart. You don't you don't do anything that doesn't make a lot of sense about a business. But um, I mean, I, I would just invite people to look at it that way whenever they look at anything that our, the ESPN brand is involved in. Are they there to bring more than just 
a network throwing content at it, is there a value added in the whole process? Yeah. Well, and we were obviously your, your representative there at that time. Again, yep. I don't remember how many years <laughs> that is back now, but uh, we did sell ESPN program here in Asia and a couple, I can't remember which countries we have, but uh, it, you know, so it was fun working with you guys. Now, I, I want to get dive a quick one into here, into ESPN Star Sports World, um, you know, during the, I guess, uh, again, early 80, early 2000s, um, you were a, a board director on that joint venture with Murdoch and, and Disney, uh, which mm -hmm. is obviously what it was called at that time. It was the ESPN Star Sports Network here, which currently is Fox and now, of course, back to, you know, ESPN. So it's, it's as usual. <laughs> it's very interesting how, uh, how this all comes around constantly here. Um, now let's, you know, first of all, how did it happen? You know, and, well, I know part of the story was um, that obviously both networks were competing with each other, right? Star Sports and ESPN. Um, mm -hmm. Prices were going up. And uh, and that was, I'm sure someone was realizing that that doesn't make sense, right? You're kind of beating each other up. And of course, on the back of it, both groups were losing a lot of money, right? It wasn't a profitable venture, at least what I remember there. And I think it had something to do with even maybe cricket in India, where it really came to hit. So there was a marriage by, hmm, let's call it by maybe forced, right, or, or by market uh, forces, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, and then, but, you know, again, these are big egos there, right, Disney and, 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 uh, and you got uh, the Murdoch group there. Um, it must have been an interesting time, right, to manage that and then, you know, be all of a sudden be that dominant player where, you know, people like us initially were selling to both of you. And we would, of course, make sure that uh, you guys were nicely competing. And now you're one. I, I remember that shock to the system that, uh, you know, now we only have one person to talk to. So let's let's talk about it from the inside, from your side of, you know, uh, this of the story here. Interesting. Well, I'm listening at your description of <laughs> that whole situation, and I realized that that literally is how most people perceive what happened. Yep. And so I'm not going to try to dissuade your perception of what happened. What I will tell well, you, it's from is the that, outside, right? You, I want to hear your inside yeah. part exactly. Well, I mean, there's it, it's the broadcast politics piece of it that mm -hmm. I told you before. Yeah. It is that. You know, some of the points that you point to are just common sense when it comes to finance. Um, some of these points there are the perception, uh, perception that I think some rights holders had hmm. uh, or discussions. And I like you, people who were selling to both and, and not. Um, it's like it's just smart business. And you were talking about two very large companies that were very focused on trying to figure out how do you make this profitable? And if you only have uh, the pie is so big, which is the reason uh, I think the discussions happen, you wind up sitting down and you wind up talking about it. And, you know, you use the you said market forces kind of put it. I mean, I think that's a more appropriate way to do it, look at it than the idea that it was some sort of forced marriage. Yeah, forced marriages don't really survive for very long. This evolution that you're looking at was just two group of people. I, I, can, I can't go into great detail about the, the board meetings or anything else. But what I will tell you is it was always I always look forward to getting um, on a plane and flying and having a board meeting with the two groups of people who were on the board. Because the one most important thing about ESS as success during that period was that everybody wanted it to be a success. Mm. And that it was more than just a tokenism opportunity for people to sit. Uh, the management of the company were held accountable. 
Um, and it taught me a lot about, and which helped me when I started working and, and being a chairman of the group, uh, our, our administrative, I won't call it a board because you couldn't have an outside board in Japan, but this shadow board that, that I managed, um, management group, I learned a lot from being in the room and watching and understanding and realizing that, you know, you have to have a long-term view of business. And that what was exciting for me about being part of that was that there was a group of people who, you know, Sandy Brown ran it at, at one point, Rick Dovey ran it, given assignments that the board was uh, very much encouraging and supportive of what they wanted to try to do. Um, there are a lot of stories that came out of a whole lot of different places. You know, you cite India and cricket. Well, you know, cricket is the sport in India. And the question is, uh, as much as you, you'd like to think about it as being, well, this was about ESS, this was about, um, you know, News Corp or Fox and ESPN. No, it was about the terrestrials. It was about the leagues. It was about everybody else that was in India. And we wanted to play in that game. So it may have appeared from the outside that it had something to do with us. And, and it was how do you navigate all of that? And is are there strengths that you can have by working together in in, in that environment? Hmm. And that had a lot to do with our success and then the channel success. You know, you learn as you go through the people from Wisden. Um, you know, we bought that the ESPN Cricket Info. You know, we bought that and I was it was during the time that I was still on the board that group managing it and it spent time in Bangalore having conversations with the people who were running it and learning a lot about what was going on in India, the heritage that came with Wisden and what we were trying to do, uh, the group out of the UK. So it was when you have all of these disparate pieces, it just makes sense for you to sit down and start looking at it and going, OK, who actually has the knowledge and how can you get all that in one place to sort of move forward? I know I'm making it sound a lot more collegial than most people rightfully uh, think of it. And to some extent, I even think of it because there were times when, you know, you get two different corporate cultures having discussions. But at the end of the day, I just always keep coming back to the fact that we'd have a board meeting. And after that board meeting, everybody, there was enough of a consensus to keep the company moving forward. Yeah. So. Interesting. I mean, no, no, I appreciated that, that you maybe you can't touch on exactly what happened inside there. But uh, again, you know, looking at it from the outside and, and then bringing it back to maybe even current days a bit. I want to just touch on that before we obviously jump a bit back into what you're doing now. Um, mm -hmm. And how you finish in ESPN, but uh, if I, you know, here and this is an actual story. I, I had a conversation. This is just pre-COVID, so it's a later part of uh, uh, 2019 or early or around 2019. With at that time, um, Fox, the Fox deal just happened, you know, and, and ESPN started to take over here in Asia, of course, as well. Then, and uh, and, mm -hmm. and a gentleman who was with the ESPN group out of Hong Kong was moved to Singapore, and I had a conversation with him, and he actually said. He was looking at the business. He was a senior guy there now. He said he, he's looking at the business and he couldn't figure out how to make it work from a numbers point of view. He said the simple challenge is Asia is so, well, not uh, so diverse, right? A, in terms of languages yeah. and B, in terms yeah. of sports, yeah. right? Very sure. different sports are popular in different parts of the of the region. Um, and of yeah. course, never mind that we got, got to have dozens of languages here, right? So the concept, what worked well in the US, where you have one product which fits across the entire United States of 300 plus million people there, 
Um, that doesn't exist here, which means ESPN or Fox or everyone who's doing it over the years now um, always had to create separate signals, separate you know beams or feeds. Um, it needed different content, different languages. So this whole idea of let's put up this English-speaking product, which is even if it's as big as the Premier League, right, which obviously Fox had for many years here, um, and no one will ever argue that it wasn't successful, um, wasn't that easy, right? Because in reality, you do need it yeah. really actually in yeah. Indonesian Bahasa for Indonesia, right, yeah. and in Thai for Thailand, etc., which is then, you know, adds this whole complexity to it and cost, etc. So he said, you know, we're stuck. You know, one side we can buy, of course, we have the firepower to buy the best content in the world, but to localize it, the cost is, is huge, which means then the, the trickle-down effect into the networks um, is not easy right, for us to charge the right amount. And if we go to local, means we're, we got another challenge, right? Then we're competing really with the, with the local players. So it wasn't easy, um, or, or still till today isn't easy. And, you know, and he sort of he almost threw up his hands and look, we don't know which direction almost to go. Well, I mean, did you see that already during your time there as well, that it was this constant, where do, the, where do we really go with it? Do you, I mean, what you described is my whole career internationally, every <laughs> okay. day. Right, okay. <laughs> it, is, it is always, so what do we do now? Um, you know, a classic example is, is Australia or South Africa. I'll, I'll use South Africa and MNET. Right. And spending time with South Africa and, and working, you know, like I said, every country that you listed, every territory you listed, there is a huge increase in knowledge and technology and um, a drive and an understanding of content that did not exist when we first started. And as we began to expand and I don't make it I don't want to make it sound too bold that we're like the G, these geniuses. Like I said before, we just played in the sandbox a lot sooner than others. Right. And so right now, you're right. The sandbox is crowded. So the question it becomes, if you know you're playing in a sand, crowded sandbox, do you keep trying to play in that same sandbox or do you find ways of redefining the future, which is where you wanted to go when you wanted to talk about OTT and everything else? I'm just saying that if you step back and understand, and this is just my philosophy, and I can't speak to the executive you talked about or the challenges that's in front of him. But I will tell you that when I was sitting in Australia back in 2000, we didn't have a network in Australia in 2000. And the question was, why would we ever get one? Because at the time, News Corp and all the Fox channels and everything else, Australia at the Don't time was it. only 20 million people. Yeah. It's like, why would they need ESPN? What's the value here? Right. And so I spent two years having a discussion with the um, Foxtel primarily, but other networks as well. And before, I'm going to take too much credit, before I got there, there had been some deals, some smaller deals done for our signal, but there was it, was, it, it really was just a token, we're here. In terms of having a presence, in terms of making it something other than something that they were getting ready to throw off the network, it was kind of on me to try to figure out, well, how do I make this more than that? And I did a, you know, we talked about local programming. I did a, a game show, even a, a local game show. Hmm. Uh, I did um, one of the mo series that I'm most proud about is the history of cricket. And anybody who's in cricket, I think, kind of knows that series. And I created that series with a, a production group called, at the time, they were called Cracker Jack. I think <laughs> now they're part of the murder, um, Elizabeth Murdoch's 
uh, company. Mm -hmm. But I created a the series with them. I worked with um, at the time Octagon or CSI. They, they changed names a lot. I think at the time they were Octagon. Um, they're a local rep, and we created this series, and it was focused on cricket. And at the time we were doing it, and the time I went out and got rights in cricket, do you know nobody was really running classic cricket uh, series on television in Australia? Nobody. But And I figured out, okay, this is an opportunity for us to actually show that we care, knowledge-based about it, created a series, and it was a multifaceted series with a book, with a game, with a DVD, uh, and all the different pieces to it. I guess the point that I'm making is that, and, and maybe that opportunity doesn't exist in this sandbox that you guys were discussing. I'm just saying that it was a matter of understanding what tools are being used in all of the places and finding out how many of those things you can come to bear. And I, my expectations were never that what we were going to be in Australia was going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread. Hmm. What we were going to be was on everybody's lips because we did something special. So let me list it for a minute. Let, let me, I want to take the conversation just in one particular direction. Sure. Uh, and, and then, we'll, as I said, we'll come uh, sort of slowly closing in then of what you've been doing over the last few years on your own there um, as sort of the last part of the discussion. But uh, let's uh, stick into the current world we're in now, right? We, we've sort of, you know, got a really good sense how ESPN got started, um, you know, and, and, the, and how it went global, um, you know, partially, you know, in some successful more than in other areas. Um, but now, mm -hmm. again, we're, we're at this sort of junction where the whole world is completely changing, right? I mean, literally everything we just almost talked about, how uh, and why ESPN was so successful, right? Cable networks were growing like crazy. The pay TV world started happening around the world. Content, you know, was needed. You know, uh, rights holders started to figure out how to, you know, cut and slice it into global versus, you know, territorial rights mm -hmm. and all that stuff, right? And so this is where ESPN being this monster in the US, a very successful company with, you know, cash reserves and, and resources uh, that they were, that you guys were taking advantage of it. And it made sense, right? And and uh, and that you were going globally it also made sense. Now, now, like I said, at the moment, we got a bit of a reverse to that going on, right? The the cable uh, subscription in the US is shrinking. The number, again, which is always was talked about that you, ESPN was on 100 million million homes, right, or 100 million, I guess, subscriptions. Um, that was like the big number there. That was, that's, you know, at least when I checked just now earlier is, you know, that was in 2013, 14, right? Since then, it has shrunk to somewhere below 80 million from what I could see online. And at the same time, of course, you have ESPN Plus, which is, you know, part similar with Disney's Plus coming up around the world. And over the last two years alone, it went from, you know, no subscribers to about 10, 12 million subscribers now. Um, so you have this, you know, on one side, everyone knows that the direct-to-consumer approach, you know, rather than through a cable network – is happening and there's no one's going to stop this right it is netflix has shown it with you know almost 200 million subs around the world now and so that disney will try to figure it out too with their own um different channels that, that's an obvious um now where i want to go with this conversation i'd love to you know i know you're not obviously directly involved but you i'm sure still watching your 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 industry there um you know from your point of view so you know espn plus is a five dollar 99 subscription model uh in the u.s i'm not sure you which part other parts of the world it's even available 
Now, from what I read is that a cable subscriber were paying somewhere more close to seven or nine dollars for that particular part, right? And this was again, you know, you can correct me if I'm completely wrong here, but ESPN as a subscription model or sorry, let's call it the affiliate fees which you were receiving from cable operators, you were way ahead of everyone else. Um the number I saw was is that if you were getting seven or nine dollars from a cable operator, the next best platform, whatever or channel maybe got a dollar fifty. I mean we're talking, you know, completely different levels here. So very successful model. We talked about earlier, you know, eight point six billion dollars worth of affiliate fees. And now you're going into the direct consumer work where you are directly competing with it, but you're getting a smaller slice. Right? So it's obvious you don't need just we don't have to do the math here that this doesn't work and therefore, you know, the company is obviously uh, you know re rejigging it. Looking at everything you've done there for 30 years and seeing where the industry is now, well, how would you describe it? You know, is it just a natural evolution and, and therefore ESPN has to shrink itself healthy or what do you see? Well, first of all, I don't see the house as being on fire. Okay. After listening at you. Yeah, I'm a little more worried maybe than you are, <laughs> but it's yeah. good to hear. I, yeah, yeah I, I don't see the house as being on fire. Is there a concern? Well, I would address the concern this way, and then this is because rather than my trying to walk through many of the things you laid out, some of the statistics, some of the numbers, I mean, people are throwing numbers all the way around, and only people inside know the official numbers, but, you know, right now, everybody seems to know everything. So rather than focusing on that, I would just tell you that there is a basic philosophy that I've always um, been part of is being inside the ESPN and Disney ecosystem. And that is price sensitivity is based on price versus value. And that you think about the parks and all you have to do is walk through a Disney park and you see the enjoyment that a family has. People save up for two, three years just to take their family to a park because it's a destination that they know that the brand statement means I'm going to get I may not like the price or I may love it, but I do know I'm going to walk away feeling that the money I spent gave me the value that I expected. So as long as I I think the future, and as you're trying to describe the future, I think the future is still focused on that. And as you cite examples about Disney Plus, you know, when Disney Plus was launched a year ago, everybody was just thinking they were good. Just they were happy to be able to get to 12, 30 million, um, million households in two years. Uh, and it turns out that in less than a month, again, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not meshing things together too fast. They tripled what anybody thought they were going to do just on the brand value alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah I think they're, they're up to in the 70 to 80 they're, they're million. Uh, yeah, no, they're, not, they're, they're almost 90 now. 90 now. All right. But, okay. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. But, you know, and, and a lot of that is because of Hotstar um, uh, and, and all the other things that they're. So they're getting to this point of in less than a year and a half, they're getting to a point of being a meaningful um a meaningful content provider in a universe that Netflix kind of defined mm-hmm. and has done that over time over the past five years. Yeah. And I and I and I come back to that because Netflix continues to be successful because they understand the idea of price and value. 
I'm not sure that they 100% got it right, but what they feel is is that if you throw tons of stuff at them, somewhere in there is enough. So that's their model for price and value. They price their 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 whole point is that I'm going to give you so much stuff that you cannot say that you're paying me for nothing. Yeah. And that um, you know, as much as in my my new life, I want to put a hat on and call Netflix and say, hey, I'm here and and, and you know I'm pitching them for ideas as well. The point that I'm making is that that is their model. And they jumped on that two, three years ago when people were going, you're spending how many billion dollars on content? Why are you doing that? And they began to understand the shift. There's a shift going on, which most people in in a couple of different places, which most people seem to not be focused on. One of the shifts is in technology and the satellite area, but not probably the way you're thinking. And the other is in the area of just the content and amount of content and and how that price sensitivity becomes very important. The pandemic was, uh, you know, one of those black swan events, which nobody predicted. We've all talked ad infinitum about what is done to our lives and how things are happening. It's going to take some time to flush it all out. I'm not saying there's any good or bad uh, this isn't a good or bad discussion. Mm. I'm saying that to answer your question, we're going to have to figure out different things now than we did before. Right. So even though you do have that challenge in front of you, you still have the challenge of price versus value. And I just think if you grind on that real hard, that it may not be immediate for what happens because you know you know Netflix had the chance to start this race earlier than most. They got cues, which most people missed, and this is in the distribution business. And I'll say this, and I hope most people don't disagree too much. The distribution model of how things have been handled in terms of syndicating programming and everything else has definitely changed. It began to change three years ago, and most people missed it. When, When Netflix were not allowed to renew certain things, when a lot of large content providers began to start not relicensing or looking at their uh, IP uh, archive and and making new decisions about, am I going to still give somebody 35% to rep me someplace? Or maybe, just maybe, they knew, like I was talking about the Sonys and the Panasonics, you know, if you're smart, and you're running a large corporation, you've got people sitting in a room with a blank, with a whiteboard, and you're thinking five years down the road. And what you're asking yourself is in two-year increments, I'll even say 18 months, use the old Moore's Law. In 18-month increments, what is exactly going to be going on in that place? And are we positioned, if you're a content provider, are we positioned to make sure our content stays part of that? And if not, what do we need to do? And so- most of the people that you may be looking at and thinking through, uh, that's just next to the house isn't on fire. The house is on fire for people who haven't got their heads around that and figured that out. Uh, you know, NBC just recently, uh, Universal just launched uh, Peacock. Um, the fascination with OTT is that, and this goes all the way back to the 1984 discussion about ESPN. Now we have to have two revenue streams. Everybody now in the OTT business, everybody is dealing with this has put forth a dual revenue stream model. 
Agree. And I, so, and and that's the trick. I mean, I, we learned it ourselves here when we launched our own OTT, uh, and we mm-hmm. we thought it was the subscription model, um, you know, following in the footsteps of uh, of others, uh, and it wasn't. Uh, they, they, we needed. It was very clear. Uh, the advertising dollar was still a really important part, and and of course, the advertising dollar in sports is a very natural one anyway, right? People are used to having you know uh, yeah. watching Your commercials during the breaks because which yeah. is different than in a movie, right? You don't stop a movie for a commercial. Yep break really i mean the the terrestrial broadcasters do it and it drives me nuts when you still watch yeah. one of these old one of those channels but uh you know in sports it was a, it's a there are natural breaks to do it and therefore i think um the advertising part will be forever in my mind um uh, a huge huge important part i, I do agree with that well uh, it's 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 just natural i mean for you not to want to stick your name on a pair of jeans or put your name on the side of a bus I mean, there will always be this desire to advertise. You just have to figure out how do you do it in the current, with the current technology and the way that you reach consumers. Correct, correct. Now, like I said, before we sort of get to the final part, and, and it kind of leads mm-hmm. nicely into the, you know, the movie space, which you're sort of coming back, right? And that's how we obviously started our conversation earlier. But I, I do want to have just one last thought from you on, you know, ESPN, and let's call it Disney, doubling up on sports, right? With the acquisition, of course, of, of Fox sports um as well globally i know it's i don't want to go into detail of which parts they bought and which they didn't buy uh, but to mm-hmm. me that was you know it's a huge acquisition with 70 billion dollars or whatever the number was um you know so murder getting out even though he you know he i think he coined the term you know sports is the ramrod for his you know channel so how did you read this as an industry veteran um that play either from you know ESPN's point of view of doubling up there and or why is murder getting out what what do you think what's your view on that well yeah okay um and, and, and I appreciate you giving the uh, asterisk at the beginning of this conversation. This is all speculation. I know nothing from anybody anywhere inside. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. But I will tell you, right, but I tell you that it's about observation and that uh, I get back to the Malones of the world. Malone has just decided, and I'll get to the Murdoch kids. There's certain people who have these rooms where they sit with a whiteboard. I, I, they're not real, but to me, they're these mythical rooms in my head that they always are doing what I just said, looking and trying to figure out how you position yourself. Mm-hmm. They've been doing this their whole career. They've always, you know, Murdoch just deal a deal two days ago with Google, where Google now is going to license all of their news content. So this whole argument about newsprint, paper, whatever, Google, the largest <laughs> uh, digital uh, group who's been going around making copies of every book that ever existed yeah. and putting in in archives or mapping every street. They're just this huge data mine organization. And the fact that they and Murdoch have now merged together for more, even more content to be data mined. Imagine what an AI is going to do inside of the entire library that News Corp has and what they've done with news right. and the kind of imaginative things. That, so, um, I don't see anybody getting out of anything. I see them repositioning themselves, understanding where the future might be. Mm-hmm. Um, the deal that was done, you know, that you described between Disney and, and Murdoch, again, it was uh, one of those things where people kind of look, if you look, what was taken out of that mix was the regional sports networks. Right. The regional sports networks are not part of that for either one of those groups. And the question is, is are they gonna live how they're going to live. That's not the problem of either Disney or Fox in this whole merger 
not merger, but the acquisition that was done. Mm. So, um, you know, and I get back to and you know what, the SPACs that's being done, Malone has just done a $500 million smack, yeah. a blank check, mm. and it's to do a little bit of everything. Since July, there have been over 70 uh, SPACs. And for those yep. who don't know what a SPAC is, it's a special acquisition company who goes to the market and gets money first, then they figure out what they're going to buy. Yep. And so there have been 60 of them in sport alone Correct. that have come to the market in the past couple. So it's just it's all of this ever supposition about where everybody's going to be, how people are going to play. Um, if you are a a player who has a foundation, which I would, would categorize ESPN as, and Disney, if you are a player, you understand sports, you understand the field of sports, you understand the world of sport, then you don't panic. You just kind of figure out, okay, this is where we're going to build the house right now. We're going to start building the foundation, and because we're a long-range company, we're going to weather through whatever it is that swirling around us. Mm. There have been, and, and I think you as well as your audience can all point to so much money that has been put in people who have tried to get past that barrier to entry to be a broadcaster, to be a uh, content entity, and they go by the wayside. Yep. There's so many people in this business who've changed jobs three or four times, and they keep bouncing from one thing that fails to the next, to the next, to the next. That's not an indictment of anybody else. That's just an understanding that maybe some people have a better sense of how to finesse the financial uh, piece of this business and understanding the whole price sensitivity thing that I keep keep bringing up. Yeah. No, no, that's a good point. And, and my last podcast, which we released last week, was uh, with uh, John Glazier of The Zone, right? And the Perform Group, which obviously, in some sense, you could argue, want to be a little bit the new ESPN, right? Um, in mm -hmm. some sense. So, uh, you know, and they still have a long way to go as well. Uh, and they're not profitable, obviously. And John, you know, talked us through the challenges they're facing, in a sense, as well, um, which is no different than what ESPN is facing or ESPN. ESPN Plus is to some degree is now working on as well. So, you know, it's yeah. we could go on forever on this here um, because it is an amazing <laughs> topic. Um, and of course, always trying to get a career of someone like yourself into an hour or two is impossible. So, you know, we're touching just on a few things here and there. And, and but I'd le I learned a ton of things already. But I, I'd love to leave everyone a little bit with, um, you know, what is you what are you doing now? You know, uh, where is Bernard Stewart right now? I know it's more back to your film world. So maybe just a quick wrap up here um, before we say good night. Okay. Well, I, I will tell you that um, I'll describe it this way. Because I led you into my Spielberg, Lucas desire as a child, you have not heard anything in all of this we've talked about of my actually living that dream. Mm -hmm. This has turned out to be really good for me, by the way, this interview, because I've been working on a book for like forever. Who doesn't? But I've been working on a book forever. And there are pieces of that, um, that journey that are very personal in yeah. terms of personal losses with some who know a little bit about me. Um, my, my wife, who um, she had a stroke and she, now she 
still has some uh, quite a bit of physical challenges to deal with. And so those are part of all who I am and, and part of this journey. Yeah. And it had a lot to do with that, that, that inflection point in your career where after doing all the things we talked about, because we didn't even get around to the cricket and the Caribbean, and there's just so much more yes, that is. I'm going to jam inside this book, South Africa, Mexico. You know, I live the lives of what I consider 12 people. And that I, you know, I'd gone down the um, for Tour de France. I've actually been in a car with Danielle Petra, who used to run Eurosport, a great cyclist, and been in it. But so it's those kind of walk the field at a Super Bowl. All those things I hope to be able to get into um, this sort of book form to be able to do what you and I just done here. Mm. But I Can't put those aside. <laughs> I put those aside. And I think, okay, so what have I done for myself? And it was in 2013, there was a lot of discussion in the company because when I came back from Asia, uh, you know, I'd been there for quite some time uh, running everything since 2000, just 1999, all the way up through um, 2008. Yeah. So it was like, okay, so what are you going to do? And then, you know, well, if you've been away from being inside the U.S. for a long time, You've considered yourself a citizen of the world, learning all kind of trivia, like, you know, why does a Japanese teacup have no handles? I mean, it's just like all these things are part of who I am, which I love and enjoy. What am I going to do with it? So I put that aside and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back. And over this 40 years, I had been writing scripts whenever we're hanging around script ideas and story ideas, a box full of them. So I figured, you know what, I'm back at it. I'm going to get and start over. The fascinating piece of that, though, is that as much as you've been extremely complimentary and we've gone through a whole lot about my knowledge about sport or the things I've been exposed to, for me to sit here and tell you that, okay, now I'm going to be a filmmaker and be successful at it is is (laughs) it makes people kind of giggle a little bit. For me, I was Norm at Cheers, meaning that guy who walked in in L.A. and Hollywood, spent a lot of time in L.A., a lot of friends in the business, but I was just a sports guy. Everybody wants to talk sports, so that's what we all talked about. I was non-threatening, <laughs> so I wasn't going to take their job. They didn't have to worry about the film business or anything else. Uh, but then all of a sudden, here I am saying I want to be in the film business, and they look at me and they go, you want to do what? Well, you've never done it. What are, you, what are you talking about? So I thought real long and hard about it. One, I felt confident that this, I was a storyteller. Because that's what I've been my whole life, and that's certainly what ESPN taught me how to do. I just needed to understand structurally how to get better at it. And so over the past three or four years, I think I've gotten really good at it. The other part, though, was that understanding the business itself, uh, understanding the syntax, because like you and I just went through a very healthy discussion about success and failure in business. Well, all of that translates to film in in Hollywood as well. You just need to know the syntax. You need to know that when they say waterfall, what are they talking about? And all they're talking about is, well, who gets paid first and when? Or first in or first out. All the other things that that go with how that world defines itself. And it's very unique in terms of how they define their terminology. But they're not unique in terms of defining what they do. Hmm. I mean, you know, you sell cars, you sell washing machines. You know, there's just certain things that people are successful at. If you understand how... The, the system works, you have a reasonably good chance to doing that. I also realized that in order for me to get the knowledge I needed uh, at this stage of my career, 
I needed to learn it fast and learn it quick. And so um, Hollywood runs on one, one thing, cash. Right. And I had been lucky enough to have enough people, and that's part of my portfolio because I'm doing some work with some people who have family offices. Right. I've known enough people who have money and looking to put money to work, as we like to say it. Right. And so I thought, okay, if I understand correctly, if I can get them to realize that I can help them figure out how to get projects financed, I'm not, and it's not my money, but if I can help them in it, then they, there's a, a reciprocity there that I'll learn everything I needed to know. And so in 18 months, um, again, being a, a bit um, braggadocious here, I'll say in 18 months, I learned what most people spend ha- their whole career in Hollywood trying to learn right. bits and pieces because it was a fairly intensive discussion because I've helped people find money. But in terms of finding money, I, I made them explain to me um, in ways that I was able to transpose it. So where I am right now, the whole film business is, is that I have a nice little slate that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, Obviously, the pandemic destroyed everybody and anybody who had anything going. And since I was a neophyte in this business trying to get myself set, that just set me way back. So now I'm back. I have um, reestablishing a slate of uh, projects that I've written. I have an animation uh, series. And people want to see a little bit about what I'm doing. It's, um, can I plug my website? Yeah, please, absolutely. Okay, it's uh, A J E three Alpha. Well, A J. Well, it's it's an acronym that I use for my uh, my grandkids. Oh, that's cool. Elena. What does it stand for actually? I was gonna say yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Elena, Julian, and Elizabeth are my grandkids. Right. Okay, and it's three of them. Yeah, three, so it's yeah. three entertainment. Got it. So it's A J E three Studios dot com. And um, what I've, you know, we've gone through a really um, fairly intensive focus on just civility and equity and equality. And so I thought, okay, how can I really do something here? So I've, I've already, I started a small group of people who are influencers, and we've been talking now for the past year. And it's just a matter of discussing things and not to each other as much as it is arming these people who I think are very strong influencers to go out and talk to their friends about it because mm. maybe they'll listen. Uh, because talking to each other in these rooms, the echo chambers that are created everywhere is useless. The whole point is arm people with the information, arm people with the understanding of how civility and, and equity is supposed to happen on a universal basis. Then they're able to go back and have have a discussion where it's necessary without making assumptions about things. So I've imbued that in terms of the projects that I'm trying to do. Um, not being uh, the kind of person that wants to wave flags and, and create a whole lot of trolling over things that's not necessary. But the um, I think if you look at the website, you'll see in the animation section, there's this one uh, series that I've written, and it's called um, Kid Mystery. And it's an ensemble of, of young uh, kids of color. Um, the most important piece for me, though, is that it's about nine t- tweens, kids between 9 and 12 years old. And what most of us don't really think about is that really is, if we think about our lives and the lives of our children, one of the most foundational parts of how we learn all these things we want people to be, the civil parts, how you treat each other. So you're too old to be called a child, but you're too young to be called a young adult. Mm -hmm. So they're stuck. They, you you know, your kids need to to go things and they need to try things, but they still need your help to do it. They need you to guide. And to, so the series is really focused on real life problems. 
that we have a tendency not to talk to kids about during that time set in this fantasy world. I'm sort of taking Gene Roddenberry, you know, the Star Trek uh, thought process of science fiction. Mm -hmm. People learn better when you're talking about fictitious and fantasical worlds, if you're going to give them a lesson, I should say lesson, if you're going to talk about things that are important, talk about it in a way that they don't feel threatens their current existence. So Star Trek, every last one of them, always have this very strong fiber of society and how we should treat each other, but it's done in an action-packed uh, suspenseful way. So I'm treating this the same way with this. This is a very fanciful. It's mystery, the kid considers himself a mystery solver. And he has a character that is invisible to everyone else but himself called Mr. Mystery who helps him solve these these things. All right, cool. Well, well, well again, looking forward to, to seeing it uh, come to life. Um, while you're talking, I have some flashbacks to I invested in a, in a uh, whatever you call it, yeah, a round of slates. That's actually the first time I've ever heard that name, terminology. It was, uh, I think, 2007, 2008. Uh, the global crisis got in the way, so none of those films were ever made, unfortunately. So it was not one of my smarter investments. Um, but I, you know, I so I understand that part, and we it was you know again good movies, good scripts. Some of them I think were eventually produced, but uh, as I said somehow all of us uh, really kind of you know, never made a dollar on it here. But uh, it's it's a fascinating world as much as it is sports for sure. Well, let me let me add a little piece because the sports world taught me this. Let me add a little piece is that you can be successful at this business. There are some really smart companies that are doing some amazing work. There's right. a company called Braun Studios from Canada. All through Asia, you're sure you can put your fingers on it. And you always ask yourself, why are they able to make films? Why are they able to make films to make money? And that everybody else seems to have problems with this. Hmm. And so part of my study is that understanding that they create this ecosystem that gives them a chance to have that freedom uh, and also being willing to be listened to what people are saying and and, and what they need. And um, I'm 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 using my my past to help uh, help define the future. Uh, and I have one last project that which is way off the charts and probably will never happen. I'm calling it E zero. Um, everybody is pushing, and many governments right now are pushing for carbon zero by 2050. Right. And you know that's a nice idea, but. We'll never get to what we need to do unless we are at a point where they call it ecological zero, which it means is that all the waste, everything that we do, gets back to a form that can be reused again and sustainable. Right. And it's, I think it's doable. And uh, yeah. my idea is more of a – I'm using my production background and my thought background in terms of experiences. It really is creating this uh, environment where people can see it actually happening. And they can participate in it as an education towards later. Um, it's a fairly, it's not an expensive model, but it's not cheap. But the idea would be if you got a chance to go into a place that gave you 100% sense of what ecological zero could be. I like it. Well, I mean, look, that's, that's a whole new podcast there, I think. The part I wanted to mention, which you, you should check out, uh, and, and maybe you know these guys already, uh, there's a company called Game One. Um, and I had uh, one of the co-founders, Craig Economou, on the podcast. Um, the, the title of it is actually called Sports Goes to Hollywood. Um, so he's he's a sports guy too. He partnered up with um, – uh, what's his name? Basil 
uh, Ivan, I think if I'm sure I pronounce the name proper, but he's one of the he was one of the founders of the John Wick series, uh, and with Michael Smith, oh, okay. which is a an mm. ESPN uh, Sports Center guy, um, and yeah, they created yeah. this new company, and and everything they do is linked to taking the the amazing world of sports into this sort of Hollywood realms, right? Um, storytelling of of course not just in movies but in short films, in podcasts, right. in you name it. Um, go check them out. I think again, I was just listening to you. And of course, you're, you're, you know, you, you get this incredible experience in the world of sports um, and a huge passion, of course, for, for let's call it uh, the, the film part of it. Um, you never know. Maybe there is something you can do with these guys. Uh, I think they're, they're, doing, they're onto something. Yeah. They're doing some amazing work, um, working with the athletes and turning as said, their stories into Hollywood productions, basically. Right? So maybe, maybe wow. there's another one for you there. <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always good to be in a room with smart people. You learn a lot that way if you can just keep your mouth closed long enough <laughs> exactly exactly but bernard this was awesome here as i said i think this will uh, rank as the longest podcast we've had so far <laughs> you beat <laughs> you beat uh, david falk and and many others uh, illustrious who had incredible careers but uh, i think we've had some incredible wow. insights into your world uh, the world of espn and of course many other parts around it your, your philosophies of life etc so Thank you for your time um, and good night there in, in Las Vegas. And uh, thanks for sharing the stories. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. And I look forward to hearing um, from you how people receive this. Um, you never know. But the conversation between us, and that's how I kind of look at this selfishly, was really good. And I'm glad we had a chance to do this. Definitely. Thank you, Bernard. And good night. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luer. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.